Colossians chapter 1, where we are this week. So Colossians, if you're a note taker, breaks up into three um, categories in the first three chapters. Chapter 1 is um, the truth about Jesus. And so what we're going to see today is a case being made for Jesus. And Paul really is going to lay in chapter 1 about the truth about who Jesus is. In chapter 2 is about the truth about the cults. Okay? And so... Um, what happens is, um, as, as Jesus dealt with, and Paul was constantly dealing with what we call the second in, or the group that was, Paul would come in and he would preach the gospel, and there was always a group that would come in behind him and try to change or tweak what Paul said or what he was doing. And so Paul is constantly, and one of the things you find, we dealt with it in Philippians, we're going to deal with it again in Colossians, we see it in other places, um, where Paul has to deal with the cults. And so chapter 2 of Colossians is the truth about the cults. You know, the interesting thing is that Jesus, he spent so much of his ministry dealing with um, the, the, the Pharisees, right? I, I, can, I can remember reading through the Gospel of Luke, and I'm reading a story, and Jesus is fighting with the Pharisees. And then I turn the page, and I'm reading the next section in Luke, and Jesus is fighting with the Pharisees. He's either fighting or arguing or teaching, or he's going at it with the Pharisees and about their legalism and their Phariseeism. And, and then I turn the page, and I'm reading another story in Luke, and I'm like checking the page, like maybe I didn't turn the page because Jesus is fighting with the Pharisees again. And then I check where I'm at. and No, no, it's actually being recorded in Luke that Jesus is actually fighting with the Pharisees again. And Jesus spent so much of his time and ministry arguing or, or fighting. I don't know what the right word is, spending time um, with the Pharisees over the different issues of the law and fighting. And then Paul does the same thing. And so in Colossians chapter 2, he's, he's just going to lay it out. You know, we, lo- we saw in the, in the church, the Philippians, where, you know, the different groups, whether it's the Judaizers or whether it was the, the Gnostics that would come through, that, that, that Paul was, was dealing with and fighting with these, these guys all along. And then in chapter 3, we find the truth about you. So the devil has a plan. And the devil doesn't need to tell you that Jesus doesn't exist. One of the biggest tactics of Satan, again, is not to tell you that Jesus doesn't exist. That, that argument doesn't fly. It doesn't hold water. One of, the, one of the world's leading atheists tells his students, stop arguing that Jesus doesn't exist. You make us look unintelligent. You make us look bad when you say that Jesus doesn't exist. The, the archaeological, the historical evidence for Jesus is, is overwhelming, there's more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than there is for the Battle of Waterloo. Does anybody doubt that the Battle of Waterloo ever took place? But yet, so, so he tells his students that don't, don't argue that Jesus doesn't exist. Just argue that Jesus is not who the Christians say he is. And so Satan doesn't, you know, he doesn't argue. He can't argue that, that Jesus didn't exist. Do you realize that in all of the cults, they have a form of Jesus? In the book of Quran, Jesus is mentioned seven times in the Quran. He has a different name that it's Isis or I-S-I-S. Isis is kind of a form of Jesus. But if you talk to a Muslim and you ask them, they will actually tell you, I believe in Jesus. But, but if you get down to the brass tacks of who Jesus is and who they believe Jesus is, what you find is that it's two different Jesuses. 
They believe that Jesus is a prophet. He's a good person that Jesus is going to come back in, in the end times according to Islamic prophecies. And Jesus's job as the prophet of, of Muhammad, as the prophet of Allah, is to let us Christians know that we got it wrong. That we were the ones who were wrong and mistaken. And so um, is that the Jesus that we believe in? So we use the same words with some folks, but we have different dictionaries. So our definition of who Jesus is, is very different. And again, you know, all all that Satan has to do is just, you know, move Jesus down vertically just a notch. Just take Jesus from the very God, the very creator of the universe, and and, and just move him down. You don't have to move him down all the way down here. All you have to do is just, just, just a little bit down of position of who Jesus is, and, and it changes absolutely everything. And, and I don't care which um, ism or schism that you, you look at, you find the same thing. You find that um, they've just diminished the role of Jesus just a little bit. Now, the term cult is something that it's become kind of derogatory or offensive or, you know, if you suggest that a certain um, religion or, or, or belief system is a cult, then it's offensive to the folks, right? Because, but technically, by definition, the term cult just means and was intended to mean um, before it kind of became derogatory, it was just intended to mean that anyone who strayed from Orthodox Christianity, anybody who strayed from the fundamentals of Christianity. Sometimes when, uh, you know, I get a knock on the door and folks, and I, I try to help them understand that, you know, I'm not telling you you're wrong because they always accuse me of, of saying, well, you, you say I'm wrong. You say I'm wrong. So listen, listen, I'm not telling you you're wrong. I want you to understand you guys actually told me I was wrong because the Christianity that I'm trying to follow is the same Christianity that the apostles followed in the first century. And I'm doing my best to follow what Paul and Peter and James and, and the Bible taught in the new Testament that, that, folks and Christians did for 1800 years until somebody came along and said they had a different revelation, a new revelation, a new um, gospel. And and you're the ones that told me I'm wrong. And so for us as Christians, um, by definition, we're Orthodox. Now you think of Orthodox, you think of, I think of Orthodox, I think of like Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox. I think of them like Russians with the big funky hats in the Orthodox church in Russia and little midgets and that's, the, that's a true story in the Orthodox Church in Moscow. Um, and, uh, but really, but by definition, another one is fundamentalist. They say, oh, we're not fundamentalists. But actually, technically, for Calvary Chapel and for us, we're fundamentalists in the sense that our, our Christianity is orthodox. It's fundamentalist. It's, it's, it's rooted in first century Christianity. And we've, we've, we've not strayed or changed that. Now, you know, for some of the cults, they don't have any problems saying, yeah, we, we, we don't adhere to that Christianity. We have a little different version of it, but that, that by definition makes them a cult. So again, what Paul's going to do in Colossians chapter one is he's going to make a really strong case for who Jesus is, because that is so important. That's, that's the key. That's the catalyst is that we have the correct Jesus, right? Does it matter? I mean, Jesus himself, he made this key issue in his ministry. He made this central to his life and his ministry of who he was. Remember, he came to the disciples and he said to them, he asked them a very important question. He said to them, who do men say that I am? And what did the apostles answer? The apostle answered and they said, well, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah the prophet. 
Because even in Jesus' day, the apostles were hearing the word on the street and there was this um, assumption of who Jesus was. And then Jesus asks one of the most important questions that you and I have to answer in our life because it's a matter of heaven and hell in your life. Did you hear me? Heaven and hell in your life. Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And then, and then Peter, as you guys know, in his defining moment, his hilltop moment in his life, the crowning moment, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and, and Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And, and, and that, that issue of who Jesus was. In another place in talking to the Pharisees on this issue of having the right Jesus and having Jesus who he is, Jesus talking to the Pharisees again, fighting with them in Luke and arguing over the law. Jesus says to, to this group, he says, you, you do err having not known the Holy Scriptures. So you have an opinion and a decision, but it's not based from the Holy Scriptures. And for this reason, you're in big error. And so you have the wrong Jesus because you don't have the Jesus of the Scriptures. And so this is the, the gloves off strong case that Paul's going to make as we, as we pick it up here in Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 9. Um, I'm going to start with a prayer. I want to pray for you guys. Paul prays for the Colossians, and we're going to pray that for, for you guys this morning as we pray. And then, um, and then Paul's going to begin in, in a very strong case of, of who Jesus is. And one of the, probably one of the most poignant places in the New Testament that we have for um, the doctrine of exactly who Jesus is. And so, um, you know, the, um, I've asked you guys before, you know, I've had you guys, I told, you know, I've told you when I taught John 15, I said, you know, if you guys all walked in the door today and as you were walking in the door, I was standing at the door and I was greeting everybody. And I asked you one question when you came in and I said, what is Christianity? And I would get all kinds of different answers along the way, but there's really a right answer and Jesus is going to answer it. One writer said of that, he said that Christianity has its creeds, but it's not a creed. Christianity has its rituals, but it's not a ritual. Christianity has its institutions, but it's not an institution. Christianity is Christ and our relationship to him. And so the answer is, and as Paul's going to give us this same answer, that, that Christianity is our relationship to Christ. It's a relationship with Jesus. It's intimacy with Jesus, with the Father, and that Jesus is himself the the key question and the key in that now the last thing i want you guys to do or next thing i want you guys to do before we get into this prayer is along these lines one of the things that we've we've tried to do as we we go through the um epistles as we teach is we look for um like hermeneutics that's the law of how we study the bible and and one of the things the holy spirit uses in teaching and in writing is repetition Okay, and so whenever you, you know, something, there's other ways we, 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 we interpret the Bible and different, you know, ways we attack it and approach it looking for different things. But one of the most simple ways that, that you can, you know, apply to your life today, you can apply to your Bible reading is, is repetition. And so if you're reading a section, if you're reading a passage, a chapter, and you notice there's a, a group of words or there's a word that's used seven times, four times, three times in a couple of verses, a, a bunch of times in that chapter, it, it's put there on purpose and, and, and it's a way immediately. So I, I highlighted. So in this chapter, because this chapter is all about Jesus and who Jesus is, I, I underline, actually I highlight, I don't know if you can see it. I just did a couple in the verses. There's a couple here and I don't, I usually don't highlight in my Bible. I don't use a highlighter, but so it fades, but in this particular part I did, and I highlighted everywhere where it says he, him, his, and, and anywhere where it's a mention, capital H, 
to Jesus. And so it's, it, you'll find it's, it's he, he is, he has in him, for him, by him, that it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And I'll ask you guys to repeat a couple of those in him, by him, for him, because it's all about Jesus. Amen? Amen. So let's look at it. Beginning of verse number nine. What does it say over verse number nine? The preeminence of Christ. The preeminence of Christ just means surpassing all others superior. And so this section that we're about to read is dealing with Jesus's preeminence, his, his, his greatness, that he is everything. He is all things. And so we'll, we'll see that. But before we do, Paul's going to open up this section with the prayer. And he says, for this reason, in verse number nine, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with all knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work. And Paul mentions good works there. And increase in the knowledge of God, strengthen with all might, according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. I like that he that he that he surrounds it in joy in verse 12, the end, giving thanks to the father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. So if you guys ever um, want to pray for me, pray for our church, pray for somebody, you can turn right here to Colossians chapter one. And in verse number 10 and 11, just pray this as a prayer, because this is a model that Paul gives us and, and covers some of the things that, that are so powerful. Maybe you want to pray for somebody, you don't know how to pray for them or what to pray for them. And, and again, if you're praying for me, I love it if you just came right here and just said these words and prayed these words over my life and our ministry here. But I want to pray them over you guys. So if you guys would do me a favor, I know it's a little inconvenient, but if you will stand up, hold your Bibles or put them on your seat for a minute. If you'll stand with me as I pray for you, leave that on or I won't be able to see. Sorry. You can turn the back ones off. Father, I ask that you that they would be filled with the knowledge of your will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. God, we pray that they would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. God, we pray that we would be being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Lord, we ask that we would be strengthened with all might according to your glorious power, the power of Jesus for all patience and long-suffering with joy. And God, we surround this in, in thankfulness. Father, we give thanks to you who qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saint in the light. In Jesus' name, amen. What a powerful prayer. Paul asked that we would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then he says, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. That word power in verse 11 is the Greek word. Anybody know the Greek word there is dunamis. It's where we get our English word dynamite. And so dunamis is is the power, the same power that God promises um, that, that we'll receive when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter two. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power to to be witnesses. And so this power that Paul is praying over you and over me and for us is um, specific. 
You know, and sometimes I think in our lives we feel like maybe we lack some power in God to have victory over areas. We lack power to, to do things for God biblically and, and supernaturally and be used of God. But again, the power, the tension of the strength and the power that, that Paul prays for has a specific meaning according to Acts. And, and it's to help you share the gospel, to be a witness. And that's in so many ways because as we've been talking about and as Paul talks about here later with joy that sometimes... Sometimes it's just joy in your life that is such a powerful witness. Sometimes it's suffering in your life that, that other people see and they see you deal with that suffering supernaturally. And they see a, a peace that surpasses understanding in your life as you go through something very difficult. And that's the witness in your life. So that power manifests itself in so many ways with the purpose of, of, of helping us be witnesses. And so... We're going to see another power in the next verse that, that belongs to Satan. But he says, with all patience, with long suffering, with joy, because sometimes in suffering that God still wants you and I as Christians to have joy in our lives. And again, it's something that we have to keep on the forefront of our Christianity. We have to be praying for, we have to be seeking. And as soon as we start to lose our joy, as soon as we start to lose the joy in serving God and in doing the things that we're doing, um, the enemy wants to rob us. We have to, we have to hang on to it. And oftentimes our joy, as we've been talking about in our last study, is it's a decision that we make. It's a choice that we make to, to make decisions, to have faith, hope, love, and, and see things in the heart of joy. And then after he gets through the prayer, he's going to begin with the, the preeminence of Christ, um, where he's really going to make a case. Now, again, I'll ask you to, um, to recognize if you write in your Bibles, highlight, underline all the personal um, proper pronouns with capital H's. So the first one in verse 13, who has? He has. Who's the he there? Jesus, so we're talking about Jesus all the way through this section. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of God, the son of whose love of his love. And so the first point that Paul's going to make about Jesus being preeminent and Jesus being the most important thing in our life, in your life, in my life, the most important thing in eternity is that Jesus gets credit for removing you from the darkness and placing you in the light. It's one of the things when I pray, you'll hear me pray this often and I'll say, Lord, thank you that you, you've taken us out of the darkness and you've, you've delivered us into the light because it comes from this concept that, that, that God literally took you out of hell and he placed you in heaven. And, and it says we were once alienated and we were strangers. We were, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And, and he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become what? the righteousness of God. And so in that, that, that one of the things, the first thing is, is that Jesus has literally taken you out of hell and put you in heaven. And it says, it says that he did it with his love into the kingdom of the son of his love. And then in verse 14, it says in whom we have redemption through whose blood, his blood, his underline it, highlight it, his blood, the forgiveness of sin. So you, you all have sin and it's through Jesus that your sin is forgiven and the blood that Jesus shed. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so it's in, it's in Jesus' shed blood that your sins are made white as snow. 
You know, the whole point about it being so much about Jesus is, do you realize that heaven and hell has nothing to do with your good works? It has nothing to do with, um, you know, your tithing, your giving, you're coming to church this morning, you know, you're making a decision to be here to worship the Lord. And it has nothing to do with that. You know, there's going to be a lot of good people in hell and a lot of bad people who were forgiven and, and, and received forgiveness in heaven. But one day God's going to look at you and he's only going to see one thing. There's only one thing that, that he's going to recognize in your life. And it's not going to be your works. He's going to recognize what? Jesus. If God looks at you and he sees his son, he's kind of fond of his own son. That's the only criteria. Is Jesus in your life? In, in him. In him by the blood of Jesus. And, 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 and Jesus, as we're going to read in a minute, he's going to present you blameless and, and, and faultless before God. Not of any, any credit of your own. But, but it's, it's in Christ. And the simple fact is that salvation is a matter of Jesus and, and that, that Jesus, God, instead, because the blood of Jesus Christ washes your sins, as John, you know, the apostle John tells us in 1 John, that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, can forgive a man of all sins. And it's that forgiveness that's necessary for salvation. And that's the criteria that God's going to see one day when he looks at you. Either he's going to see his son. And if he doesn't see his son, what does he see? He sees your sins because your sins remain. And then he says um, in verse number 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, a couple things here. Um, Remember the word invisible and verse 15 starts with what? He, he is, who is? Jesus. So he is the image of the invisible God. So what does that mean? You know, the Bible says that no man can see God at any time and live. The, the, the closest person in human history that ever got close to it was, you may remember, was Moses, remember? As Moses um, was given a blank check by God, two people in the Bible were given blank checks, Solomon and Moses. And, and Moses said, God said to Moses, Moses, what do you want? Ask and I'll give it to you. And Moses said, I want to see you. And why did Moses want to see him? Because when you love somebody, that's natural. You want to spend time with them. You want to see them. And so, so Moses wanted to see God. That was his request. Lord, I want to see you. Solomon, as we know, had a different request. He wanted, he wanted um, wisdom. And so God passes by Moses, but he says, the Bible says he hid Moses in the cleft of the rock, and then he covered Moses' eyes as he passed by, and all Moses got to see was the, the train of his robe as he went by. The backside of him. That would be like a, the wake when a boat goes by and it makes a wake. That's basically what Moses saw was, was, was God's wake as he went by. And, and no man can see God at any time and live, the Bible says, until we see him in his glory in heaven. And, and in that point, we'll be able to see God. But um, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So, you know, we, we, we like Moses, may say, Lord, I want to see you. And, and, and the Bible says here, and we, 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 we're super thankful for Thomas. Doubting Thomas, we call him. To this day, he gets the tag Doubting Thomas. But, you know, and, and the reason why he gets the question Doubting Thomas is because he asked some questions that were dumb questions or some questions that, you know, were doubting. But we're so thankful that Thomas asked all those questions. And one of the questions he asked Jesus was, you know, he said, hey, Jesus, just, just show us the Father and it'll be good enough for us. Like, we've been hanging out with you. We love you. Like, we, 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 we believe in you, and we want to follow you, and we want to have, like, lots of faith and do big things. But, you know, it would really help us. We could really, like, kind of figure this whole thing out if you would just show us the Father. And that's an easy thing for you, right, Jesus? You can just, like, show us the Father. And, if, man, if we could see the Father, 
We'd be your disciples. Everything would be good. All you have to do, just show us the Father. Was Thomas's question. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. And so Jesus is the image of God. You want to know what God looks like? And not so much um, as I described it as a personal, just what is, what is complexion and, you know, what his form is and all that. That's not, not really the point. The point is who he is. What is his personality? What is his heart? What, is G- who, what would the Father, what would God do if he was here? Jesus did it. It's the point of Jesus' coming and Jesus living. And you want to know what God is like? You need to look at Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God in the flesh. And so all the decisions that he made, all the actions that he did, That is the Father. That is God in the flesh. And so he is the image of the invisible God. And then the second part of verse 15, he's the firstborn over all creation. So what does that mean that Jesus is the firstborn? I mentioned the cults. One of the cults, um, um, if you, you know, you have a JW and and they believe that Jesus is the, um, is Michael the archangel. And they believe that God created Jesus and then, and then God used Jesus to create all things. And actually, they'll, they'll take you to this verse here in Colossians um, to try to prove that, where it says here that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Well, they, they only need to read a little bit farther in context to, to find out and then also just understand biblically that this doesn't mean, you know, in our, in our terms of firstborn. My firstborn son is Luke. And according to, um, but that's not the, the way that firstborn is used biblically, right? Um, according to the, the law of Moses, the firstborn was a position. It was a preeminence. And the firstborn got the, the largest part of the inheritance. You know, today we have four kids. I have a will. I have like six bucks when I die that they can have. I split it up like $1.75 each. And, and they get it evenly four ways. And, and that's just the way it works. Well, in Jewish culture, even to this day, it doesn't work that way. The oldest, the firstborn gets the bulk of the inheritance and the other rest, no matter how many they are, they, they split the little bit that's left. Um, in, you know, God says to Abraham, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, up onto the mountain that I will show you and sacrifice in there. Was, was Isaac Abraham's only son? No, he wasn't. Was, was he Abraham's oldest son? Was he the firstborn son? But he was the son of, of, of promise. He was the son of choice. God didn't recognize the other son. Later in the Old Testament, when um, the patriarchs would pass the blessing down, um, Joseph brings his two sons before his father, Jacob, to bless them. And, he, and, and the, they would put the right hand on the, on the firstborn, on the oldest, who would receive the, the bulk of the inheritance as it would work. And the left hand on the other that would receive a small portion of an inheritance. And so as Jacob went to pass the blessing on to his grandsons, he was blind by this point, And he went to put his hands on their heads and he went like this. And Joseph's like, dad, dad, you're doing it wrong. You got your left hand on my firstborn and your right hand on my oldest, on my youngest. And, 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 and Joseph in the, in the uh, sorry, Jacob in the prophecy says that, no, that, that the older or the younger will serve, the older will serve the younger and that the preeminence or the firstborn blessing is actually on the younger. And so that's the biblical idea of firstborn. Like we have, what do we call Melania Trump? What are you talking about? She, I thought Eve was the first lady. Is she not the first lady? Melania? 
So, I mean, we use the term first lady, right? It doesn't mean she's a first person born or the first one ever. It's just, you know, it's a term that we use, first lady. Well, that's the same idea here. Jesus is not the firstborn. He's not created of God. He's the, the first in preeminence. He's, he's the, the, the preeminent one, as, as this, this section is called. He has the highest in honor that Jesus is over all creation. And then in verse 16, Paul is now making his, his next case. And he says, for by him. So we have a by him, through him, and for him in verse 16 that you can highlight. And so this, this is important because it says, for by him, all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible. You can underline invisible. We'll come back to that idea. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Paul also has an all things going on here um, in this section that's, that's repeated. And so you'll see that. Um, all things, all things over all creation in verse 15 and verse 16. He says all things in the first part, all things in the second part in Revelation chapter four in verse 11. Speaking of Jesus, the angels are there and the 24 elders are there in this scene of Revelation four. And um, it's where the four living creatures, they they sing, holy, holy, holy Lord God almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then and then the, the 24 um, elders in verse number nine and 10 of revelation four, they, they throw their, they cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus. And then they sing this. You are worthy. O Lord to receive glory and honor and power for, for you created all things and by your will, they exist and were created. And so in God, in Jesus were all things created. Jesus is the creator of all things and he holds all things together. And, and you know that, that, that Jesus creates all things for himself. It says for him. Some people have a hard time with that. Like, well, that's not fair. He gets everything. But yeah. When you're God, you can do it your way. And in this church, you'll never be a God. You have to go down the street for that. And we'll never, we'll never attain. Jesus is God. He's the only God, the forever God. And in him, it says that they, all things were created in him, for him, by him, through him, and that he's the creator of all things. And, and we have, you know, in Genesis, we, and, and you know, we have understandably a, a Trinity doctrine that God is three in one. And, and it's hard to understand. It's hard to intellectualize. But, you know, the reality is, is that we don't have to understand all the facets of God. And if we could wrap our mind about every little detail of who God is, then he's not very big, right? He's not, he's not, he's not very powerful and omnipotent. We have a God that, you know, is finite and is, is, is infinite and is beyond our understanding. But in, in that, in Genesis, we have the creation story. And what you see in Genesis is God says, let us make man in our image. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Jesus. He's talking to the Holy Spirit. He's talking to the three in one. But it doesn't make three gods. It's one God, three distinct personalities. Jesus is not the Father. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not Jesus. But each are God. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is God. Three distinct personalities in one God. And the very, the very mantra of, um, of, of, of the Old Testament, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6.4. The great Shema. That God is one. The cod, he's one. He's plural one. And so um, 
Jesus present at creation. God uses and Jesus creates all things in him, for him, by him, through him. And then he holds all things together. And then in verse um, number 17, it says, and he is before all things and in him all things consist. So we, we know. And so in verse 17, we have two more hymns, right? Or he, him, he is before all things and in him. In who? In Jesus. Paul, Paul's really making a case here that Jesus is preeminent. First of all, Jesus forgave you. Jesus, um, he shed his blood for you. He, he took you out of hell and he brought you to heaven. And then it says that he created you. And then it says that he created all things that you have and everything, the world that you're on, he created and he gave you. And Jesus, 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 Jesus did all of these things for you. And then he says that Jesus holds all things that in him, all things consist and he holds all things together. The, you know, there's a phenomenon in, in science, right? And everything in the world is made up of atoms, right? The, it, whether it's flesh, whether it's wood, whether it's the chair you're sitting on, it's made up of atoms. And in the atom, in the nucleus of an atom, you have positive charges that, that normally should repel each other. And, and they're in the, the, the microscopic um, molecules of everything on planet Earth and every atom. You guys ever play with magnets? You take two positive magnets and you try to put them together? What happens? They repel. Doesn't work. You got to flip one over, positive and negative. But two positive charges repel. And in the center of every of every atom are millions of of positively charged atoms that should repel each other. Now, why don't they? You ask scientists why they don't. They don't really have a good answer. Science to this day doesn't have a good answer. They make things up. They'll tell you um, it's atomic glue. Something I don't know. It's atomic glue. Just something you can't see. Something made up. Atomic glue does it. And, and, you know, what, what, happens when, what, what happened when man figured out how to split an atom? Hiroshima, right? The most powerful force on the earth was when, when we figured out how to, how to split an atom. You realize there's enough power in a cup of water to destroy the entire world a hundred times over with, with atoms that, that, that are split. And they're all um, held together. We know now what that atomic glue is. We know now what that missing um, element is in this, in the nucleus of every cell. It's Jesus and Jesus holds them together. He realized that in that same vein, that as Jesus holds all things together, as the Bible says, and, and the missing ingredient in every atom that doesn't make any sense scientifically is the hand of Jesus holding it together, that they put nine inch nails in the hands of Jesus and, and he was holding those nails together. I would have let go, but he didn't. He held on and he holds on to all things that, you know, that consist. Peter tells us, turn with me if you will, real quick to Second Peter chapter 3. And um, in Second Peter chapter 3, Peter's telling us in verse number 10, he's telling us about the end of the world. He's telling us about what's going to happen after the thousand year reign of Christ. And Peter says, but the day of the Lord will come as the thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. It's all going to burn, baby. That car you love so much, you know, the, that, that house you had to have that's stumbling you and causing you to trip you up in the Lord and those things that you buy yourself. Just remember one thing about all that stuff you got. It's all going to burn, baby. One day it's all going to burn. 
So, um, and then he says in verse 11, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and, and godliness? And that's a point that Peter makes. Um, you know, now that you understand all these things are going to burn and they have really no eternal value, you know, how should you behave as a Christian? How, what manner ought you act? And then, and then he tells us in verse 12, look, looking for and hastening the coming of the day because of which the heavens will be dissolved. How? being on fire and the elements will melt with what? With the fervent heat. Revelation 21 says, John says, now I, I, John saw a new heaven and a new earth for the former things have passed away. The old earth and the old heaven have passed away and behold, God says, I make all things new. Now, now this is Probably the explanation that Peter gives us here of what's going to happen. This earth that we're on now, the heaven that exists now, God's going to create a new heaven, a new earth, and the old ones are going to burn with a fervent heat, as Peter tells us in chapter 3. And how do you think that's going to happen? Very simply, right? Jesus is going to do what? Just going to let go. And then, and, 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 you know, God pre-wired this thing to blow. I mean, our planet, your body, the universe, the chairs, the, the entire thing is pre-wired and all Jesus has to do is pull the pin. And one day he's going to pull the pin, he's going to let go, and those atoms are not going to have any more uh, uh, atomic glue and the world is going to burn with a fervent heat. But Jesus holds all things together. And then in verse um, 18, it says, and somebody, verse 18, Colossians 1, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that all things he may have the preeminence. And so Jesus is, um, again, he, he's the head of the church. He is the beginning. And again, it's important that, that as a church, that, that the head of our church, that the leader of our church is Jesus Christ. Again, it's also another gripe that, that sometimes I, I make and sometimes I have with folks is that, you know what, it, it has to be Jesus. It's revelation that comes from Jesus. It's Jesus that leads our churches. It has to be Jesus as the preeminent one who leads our church. Now, now, Paul makes this, again, you guys, this amazing case for who Jesus is in your life and my life. As Jesus told the apostles and the disciples, who do men say that I am? But who do you say that I am? And Paul answers that question, that he's forgiven us, that he's, he's redeemed us, that he's created us, he's created all things, he holds all things together, in him all things consist, he's the head of the body, he's um, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and that, and that in him all things consist. And then he says again, he is the head of the body, the church, you know sometimes we, we call ourselves the body of Christ, you know, and the body of Christ is not one church or one building. It's anybody who's a born-again believer in, chi- in, the, in Christ around the world today. We make up the body of Christ. And that's a biblical concept that Jesus is the head and we are the body. And now um, the next thing that he's going to do, and Paul's not done, you know, again, speaking of, of who Jesus is. In verse 19, it says, For it pleased the Father that in him, underline it, all And again, Paul's theme here in in chapter two is that all theme, all the fullness should dwell. Please the father that all the fullness should dwell. Jesus is in everything and all the fullness that, that, that God gave it to Jesus. The father gave it to Jesus and it pleased him. 
Didn't we read in the Philippians, in the book of Philippians, that, um, that God, for this reason, God highly exalted the name of Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. And in here, Jesus is the fullness that should dwell. And in verse 20, and by him reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or whether things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And so it's the work of Jesus on the cross that by him, whether things on the earth or in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And again, it's Jesus who saves you. It's Jesus. It's not your works. And it says, listen, verse 21, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. So Jesus is reconciling you. He's, he's making peace with you between you and the Lord. He's bringing you back to the Lord in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. He's going to present you as perfect before the Father. To present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. How's that day going to go? Jesus is going to present you to the Father you can say, Dad, this is Pat. Pat is perfect. Perfect. He's above reproach. He's blameless. Pat's going on. He doesn't know me that well. And Pat's wife is going, he really don't know him that well, right? Anybody ever called you perfect before? Sometimes about 10 o'clock at night, I tell my wife she's perfect. You're so perfect. But other than that, like, you don't think of yourself that way. You don't. Imagine like that. That's not a concept. Like we don't think of ourselves. We know ourselves too well. But can you imagine? Like just think of the day when God is going to, Jesus is going to present you to the Father. And the way that he's going to present you is as perfect. Blameless. And there's only one way that's going to happen. The reality is don't take too much credit. Don't feel too, you know, because he's going to present you as righteous and right with God. But it's based on his righteousness. And again, he's going to be inside you. And when the father sees you, he's going to see his son. And he loves his son. And, and, the, and that the, Jesus' righteousness is imputed to you. And that you're righteous based on what Jesus did for you. But you'll be presented by Jesus as perfect. Hey, one more thing, you guys. We got a few more minutes left yet. But I'm going to try to jam through this. The next section is... Um, um, super important, beginning in verse number 24. I want to finish 23, but um, I want us to not leave without this last concept that we find in Colossians chapter 1. But in verse 24, it says, 23, If indeed you continue in faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, the, the, fir- the only thing I want to really highlight in verse 23 is the very first word. What does it say? If... So it's the, it's the center of the word life, right? L-I-F-E. So, so your life is that, uh, that if that's in the middle. You know, what's interesting is that, you know, you will live your entire life and you will conquer and you will do and you will don't. And, you know, you will come and you will go. And one day you'll, you'll, you'll breathe your last. And on your headstone, right, is the day you were born and the day you died. And everything that you did in your life is represented by what? That little dash in the middle. And, and, and that, that the word life is the same way. It's that L on the one side, the E on the other side, and everything in your life is defined by that IF in the middle. 
And, and so all of these amazing things that, that Jesus wants to do in your life, that Jesus has done for you, that, that Jesus is, and not, not so much even in this chapter, because we get that in Ephesians. This chapter is not even so much what Jesus has done for you, although we find that in here. It's more about who Jesus is as God, as the preeminent one, as the most important one, as the everything in life. And, and in there, Paul ends before he, he wraps that kind of part up with this, this verse 23 that begins with if. Because really a part of life is walking with the Lord. And you have a decision and I have a decision. And yes, there's yes and amen in the Lord, but there's always a little bit of an if clause. And if you'll be obedient. And if you'll do the things of, of blessing and keeping yourself under the shower of blessing that God wants to pour in your life. And just the reality, and we wouldn't be preaching the truth, right, if we didn't um, talk about that the Bible is, it has some if clauses. And, and, and there's an if of obedience that we need to stay in. And we need to be, you know, and, and the, the motivation, though, like if we can't look up at the last like 12 chapter or 12 verses and see how amazing Jesus is and all the things that he's done for us and in us and through us and, and, and that he wants to do. And then Paul says, but if indeed these things are true, right? Verse 23, if you indeed you continue in the faith. Some people ask me, can you lose your salvation? And I don't know. I don't really answer that. I don't even want to argue about it because it's, it's, it's circular reasoning. And Christians have been arguing about it for 200 years. And, and people way smarter than all of us still haven't figured it out. And I'm not going to jump in the debate and think that I can figure it out. But I, I just know this. That if you walk really close with Jesus, you don't have to worry about it. You know, I've never had anybody come up to me and ask me that, that's like so in love with Jesus and just everything on fire for Jesus. Can I lose my salvation? Right? It's always the person who's like walking on the edge and about to fall off. And they're like, hey, can I lose my salvation? <laughs> you know, can I fall? Like, well, I don't know. If you get over here off the edge, you don't have to worry about it. And, and if you just walk close with the Lord, we don't have to answer that question. But, you know, in here and in Hebrews... There, and, and in Bible, there, there does seem to be some if clauses in there. So as we go on in verse 24, and again, this is the section I really want to um, highlight today in the last few minutes, you guys. And we'll, we'll have you out of here long before noon today. But um, it says, I now rejoice in my suffering for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the affliction of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. So in verse 24, Paul's going to begin this section by talking about um, something that I'm sure all of you do all the time. It says, I rejoice in my suffering. How many of you guys do that? I know I've already said, but it does, it does kind of fit them Geico commercials where the guy's really excited about pouring hot coffee in his lap. Oh, <laughs> girl. I like the guy, I like the uh, direct TV. That's what I meant. Yeah, that's what I said. I, I like the guy who gets in the, stuck in the turnstile and that's like his thing. He's all excited. Yeah. Yeah, stuck in the turnstile. And, and who, who rejoices in suffering? And yet Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering. Now, that, who, who else would even think that's wise or that, that's, that anybody would want to or should do that? Only Jesus, right? Who does that? Jesus. Who, who teaches that? The Bible. But for us as Christians, there's a purpose in our suffering. The Bible says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. First Corinthians will suffer. Right. And so, um, but listen real quick and then we'll move on. But there's, there's five things I want to mention about suffering and just, just quickly, I can't unpack each one of them, but suffering has a work in your life. That's important. 
And, and, and I like to preach it because um, as we go through things in life, it, it can be an area where Satan will use to discourage us from moving forward. Don't let it discourage you. Know that it's an active part of God's will. And it doesn't mean God's left you. It doesn't mean God's not with you. He's with you all the more. And so um, five things real quickly that suffering does in our lives. Number one, suffering brings us closer to the Lord. You know, God, God builds character in us through suffering. He, he stands with us in suffering. And suffering causes us to, to, to rely on him, to lean into him. And, and through the process, he, he builds character and he builds relationship. You know, he, t- he told Abraham, Abraham, take now your son, your only son, up onto a mountain that I shall tell you and kill him there. And Abraham waited years, years, 40 years after a promise for a son. He was 100 years old when Isaac was born. He loved that boy. He was a son of promise. And now God says, go kill him. But in that, in that suffering, in that, that moment of faith that, that Abraham had to have, God said, listen, no, nobody else knows what it's like to have to kill their own son. But I do. And I'm going to have to kill my own son. And Abraham, this is something that you and I are going to have in common. And it's something that, you know, we're, we're going to relate on. And, and through his suffering, he built relationship and he got closer to the Lord. Joseph is somebody who, like Noah and, and the eight people that made it on the ark, um, Joseph saved the entire race of, of, of Hebrews, which was about 75 people at that time that God was going to use to bring Jesus. And they were kind of important, those 75 people. And those 75 people were, were close to extinction. And so God raises up a young man named Joseph and, 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 and eventually is going to bring Joseph to the most powerful person in, in, in all the world at the time, second in command, and, and he saved the 75 Hebrews that were in existence in that day. But the process of, of Joseph becoming the most powerful person in, in all of Egypt was suffering. He was in a hole. He was here. He was there. And through that, he, he just became close to the Lord. And then the other one, uh, number two, assurance of salvation. Again, the Bible says all who live, all who desire to, or sorry, all those who live godly will suffer, shall suffer. And that, again, if you're suffering for the Lord, you, you know you're walking in the Lord. It's an assurance of salvation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, talks about there's a reward for suffering. There's crowns for suffering in your life. Um, in, in verse 4, our number 4, salvation of others. You guys remember Paul was um, shipwrecked on Malta and, the, and, and he was there as a prisoner and the Roman guards were there. And so the, the natives saw the, the, the soldiers and the prisoners and Paul put his hand in the fire and a serpent came out and bit his hand. And the natives, the locals were like, oh, he's dead. They had seen their own people get bit by those same serpents and swell and die. And so they're like, man, this guy must have been a terrible criminal. And karma has finally caught up to him. And so the locals sit back and they're waiting for Paul to swell up and die. And Paul shook that thing off and he didn't die. And then they changed their mind. Nothing happened. They thought, oh, he must be a God. You must be a God. And then they wanted to worship him. But, but Paul's suffering and handling it and shaking it off. It, it touched the people around him. It changed the people around him. And, and suffering, sometimes people look at your life as a Christian and God uses it in your life because somebody who you love is watching you go through it with character. They're watching you go through it with a peace that surpasses understanding. They're watching you go through it with, with God's joy in your life as you're going through something. And it touches and changes lives. And it's one of the ways God uses sufferings in the life of a believer. And then the last one we see in the, in the story of Job, that suffering frustrates Satan. You know, Job, Satan was so frustrated. He believed that he had Job pinned and, and that Job would curse God if, if he only, God only let him challenge him. And when he did, and it says in all these things, Job did not curse God. 
And so, and then the last section here, you guys, it says in verse number 25, super important, this last section of which I became a minister according to the steward from stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. And in verse 26, the mystery, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, to them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of his, this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, two things in verse 26 and 27, and we are almost done, you guys. Just give me a few more minutes. Don't check your watches or your clocks. Um, super important. Listen, we got to get this last part as a church. Um, Paul says here there's a great mystery. Now, whenever you see this, this idea mystery in the New Testament, just understand that it's, it's a mystery that, that is now being revealed. It's something that was formerly unknown, uncomprehensible, but now is going to be revealed. So that mystery doesn't mean it's going to continue to be a mystery. Paul's saying he's going to reveal what the mystery is. And he tells us um, in, in 27, um, right there, which is... And so witches is like the, you know, it's like the gender reveal, like dun, 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 dun. It's like, it's like the one I saw yesterday. They put a balloon out like 200 yards and they shot it. And I'm watching it and I'm going, that was a really good shot, but that's so far away. I can't see what color it is. And then they're screaming blue, blue, blue. I'm like, oh, it's a boy. Awesome. But I couldn't tell what it was. And then they shot it again. And I, I saw it the second time. You guys probably saw some of you saw the video. But it was the great gender reveal here in, in, in 27. And it's like Paul says there's this mystery. There's something that you didn't know. You couldn't know before. And now I'm going to reveal it to you, which is, and which is it? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Look with me really quickly as we close. In, in Jeremiah 31, 31. Um, Jeremiah 31, 31. This is a prophecy of the Old Testament concerning um, the new covenant that God was going to create. Okay? So God had an Old, an old Testament law. And, and, and in that, he was going to give us a new covenant or a new law. And this is the prophecy about it um, from the prophet Jeremiah. It says, Behold, the days are coming. Somebody say, Days are coming. Says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Somebody say new. New covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. So God gave them a covenant as he led them out of Egypt. When did that happen? Right? The book of Exodus. They're coming out. Chapter 20. Moses goes up on top of Mount Sinai. He, he's up there for 40 days. He comes down. His face is glowing. He's holding the, t- the Ten Commandment tablets. And he has the law of Moses. And, and then um, the book of Deuteronomy is, is called the second law or the second telling of the law. And so you read it and it's Moses just repeating the law of what he heard and what he got. And that's the law that, that God is talking about and prophesying here that, that he's going to give a new covenant, a new law. And that's why we're no longer bound by. It doesn't mean we throw out the Old Testament, obviously not. But, but we're not bound by the law of Moses. It was for the Jewish people. And so, but we're going to have a new covenant, God. God says, but this is the covenant, verse 33, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their mind and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
And no more shall they teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now stay with me just another minute. But this concept is Christ in us that was a New Testament thing. The Old Testament saints, they, they just couldn't comprehend the idea. In the Old Testament, God didn't fill people with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would touch down for for a moment, would give people gifts. But it wasn't until Jesus died on the cross and rose again and that God sent his Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 where we live today where it says that our bodies are what? Our bodies are a temple of what? Of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. and, And now Jesus lives in us. It's like the little girl was going to have heart surgery and the doctor came in and he said to her, you know, I'm going to have to open up your heart and and I'm going to find valves in there. And this is what we're going to do. And he was going through with her how the procedure was going to go. And the little girl told the doctor, when you open my heart, you're going to find Jesus in there. And, And that's the concept. Jesus in our life, Jesus in our heart. And that's what Paul's talking about in Colossians 2. Don't miss it. Listen, real quick, and, and I, know I'm, I know I'm almost going over, but um, we, we have to catch this concept before we close today. It, it's Jesus in you that is the hope of the glory. Everything that we are as Christians is about the fact that it's Jesus living in your life. Paul spent this entire chapter really making a very rock-solid case that Jesus is the most important thing. Jesus is the most preeminent thing. And then he says the very hope of glory that, that, that you have, the hope that you have, the, the absolute expectation of coming good is the fact that Jesus is in you. You know, it's not, it's not, we study the Bible, we teach the Bible, we were in the Bible, but apart from Jesus in us, the power of Jesus to work through us, to do everything in us, we, we don't, would never understand the Bible. We would never be able to do it. But it's Jesus in you that's the revelation. It's the great mystery of God himself coming and living in your life. And that's new. We went 4,000 years of human history and God didn't do that. Very seldomly. But he says in the last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh. You know, and, 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 and the prophecy in Jeremiah says that God's going to write it upon the tablets of our heart. And the word of God and the people couldn't understand that concept. They had the law of Moses that was bazillion pages long and hard. And then, and now God says, I'm going to write it on the tablet of your heart. And Jesus in our lives, the work of Jesus. There was a six-year-old boy that, that I had the opportunity to spend some time with. His name was Turner James. He was, had leukemia. And he was diagnosed with terminal cancer and he was going through chemo. And um, little Turner James eventually died from that chemo. And we, we walked with this family through the whole process. And on two different occasions... I remember one time little, little Turner James was telling Pastor Gerald and I, we were there together, and he was telling us that, he, he, that Jesus showed up, and, and Jesus told him that everything was going to be okay. And, and he just had the, the most amazing relationship as a six-year-old boy with Jesus. And when he spoke about Jesus in his life and what Jesus told him, he spoke with absolute confidence and truth. And, and, and you just knew that little boy knew Jesus. That's, that's Jesus in you, the hope of glory. We, we see another six-year-old girl, and, and she has a burden to share Jesus with a foreign exchange student in church. And she tells one of the elders in the church, hey, you know, that I, I want to tell them, I, I really have a burden for them. I want them to know Jesus. And, and the elder wisely tells her, well, go, go talk to him. She doesn't see him for a week, and the next week she comes back, six-year-old girl, and she sits on this foreign exchange student's lap, 11th grader, and she says, do you know Jesus? I want you to know Jesus in your heart. 
And that day, that foreign exchange student asked Jesus in her heart, got baptized in after the church service. And, and that's the hope of Jesus. That's Jesus in you, the hope of glory. You know, and, and, and it's not, it, it, it has to be right again, internal. Jesus in us, moving through us. I coach basketball at Tula High. And Friday night, we played Stansbury in a big crosstown rival. Um, chap here plays for Stansbury, so... And, you know, we, we watch a lot of film on Stansberry, and they, 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 the guys want to block shots all the time. And so, you know, we're telling our guys, you have to pump fake them because they're going to block your shot, you know. And, and, and we didn't really have a lot of time to go through it. So at halftime, the head coach, I'm the assistant coach, head coach, he comes in and he gives a speech to the players. And he tells them, man, we got we to gotta catch the ball in the middle and we got to spin and, and we got to jump stop. And then we got to pump fake and get those guys in the air. And he goes through his thing, you know, and, and then he comes to me and he says, he says, Coach Begno, what do you got? And so I came in like this. <laughs> and he said, he, he looked at me and said, that's right. And I said, you guys, look, we got it. We got to get them up. They're big. They can jump high. Got two white kids that would just get up and throw it down. And, and you're going to get your stuff sent into the fourth row if you don't pump fake them. So don't, you know. And so come out in the second half, kid named Tyler Beer, exactly like we draw, drew it up, comes through the middle, catches the pass. Jump stops, no pump fake, straight up, tries to shoot it. Big kid jumps up, and, he, and I'm watching the ball go over my head into the fourth row as he blocks this shot. Like, that's not the way we planned it. But, you know, like for me, I, I spent my whole career, you know, not being a big guy, playing a lot of basketball, pump faking, because that's the only way I could get these guys to jump so I can score. And, you know, but he, he, he just had never practiced it. It wasn't something that he could just, you know, us just talk, 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 talk in the locker room and him go out and just be in his head, know how to do it. But had, had I been able to like get in his body and during the game, if I could have got inside of him and we'd have ran that same play, I guarantee you, I would have pumped fake like seven times until, until I got, until I got open. But you know, that's what Jesus does in your life. That's the difference is that, you know, if you could get Jesus in you, he'll do it for you. He'll do it through you. It's Jesus in you that that's the hope of glory. And, and that's our strength as Christians. And we never, we're never, you know, going to become a ministry or a church or a people that, you know, and you see this as a danger in some Christian churches, even in Calvary chapels where we put such an emphasis on the Bible, where it becomes such an esoterical, you know, argument. And we spend so much time reading and intellectualizing the word of God that it doesn't have any practical life in us. And that'll never happen here. It never can happen here if we keep Jesus in us the hope of glory. We understand that the power of our lives is, is Jesus in our hearts. Amen? Amen? Thank you so much for your patience. Let's stand. The worship team is going to come up and close us in a song. And as they do, I, I, I like to end every service, you know, just with the opportunity for you to ask the Lord in your heart to make sure that your, your heart and your life is right with the Lord Jesus Christ. We just studied in Colossians that, that one of the ministries of Jesus is to forgive us of sins, to redeem us, to reconcile us, to bring us back to Jesus. One of his works is to take us from the darkness and place us in the light. And if you're not sure if you're in the darkness or in the light, you're not sure if you're a Christian or not, you don't know today, you're not positive that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, I want to lead you in a prayer. And I want you to pray with me. And we're going to ask the entire church to pray out loud so nobody gets singled out. And there's no magic in the words that I'm going to pray. There's nothing spectacular in, in, in anything, whether I, you know, I could totally mess this prayer up and it could still totally work in your heart and life because it's not about what I say or what you say. It's about your heart right now. And if you have a decision and you want to say yes to Jesus in your life right now, you, you, you mean it in your heart. 
and you want to ask God to forgive you of your sins. Admit you're a sinner. You want to surrender all of your life to God. You can't give him half today. You can't give him 80% and say, there's a few things over here I still like to do, but I don't want to go to hell. So Lord, I want to give you like most of my life. It won't work. But if you want to give God all of your life today and you really want to ask Jesus in your heart and you want to get right and know that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and that in Jesus, all things consist. I want to give you the opportunity. Let's pray together out loud as a church family. Dear Jesus, please come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. I believe that Jesus died on a cross and rose again the third day. Come into my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. We're going to close in a song and um, maybe just spend a song and worship the Lord. And just just talk to God. Let me reflect to something that you came in, a need you came in with today that you're desiring God to meet. Um, we'll be up front to pray for you. And Shane and Abby will be up front. I'll be up front. And if you ask the Lord in your heart today, and um, it's it's good to tell somebody because the Bible says that, that you should you should share that and you should tell that to somebody. If you need individual prayer, you got something going on in your life and you just want to want us to pray for you, we invite you to come up and, uh, and receive that prayer today. And um, let's just uh, together as a church family as we sing this last song worship the lord together amen